subject of diversity, or excuse me, unity in diversity, and the assignment was that they wanted us to address egalitarianism versus complementarianism and tie it to the Trinity. I still have stretch marks from that assignment. (laughs) Most of the people that came to the conference were women. We had there a lesbian. We had a woman preacher. The missionary gave me a heads up. He said, I want to warn you before you come, even our own women in our church can't even ask a simple question without there being a threatening tone. I was intimidated. And then he picks us up at the airport and he reiterates that. Brother, please don't be inhibited by our own women. He said, I don't know what to expect. He said, you might be verbally attacked. So I went in, I studied hard, I tried to be very, very biblical, very expositional. I was very transparent regarding my own life, my perspective of things, and then I even worked a little tad of humor into the sessions. I was amazed all the women were so kind and so respectful and had such discretion in their questions. But then my wife spoke to the women, and as she normally does, she stirred the pot. And so they were not as pleasant to her as they were to me. But the bottom line is, that was quite an assignment. But what our brother this morning spoke on in Sunday school, we draw much from the Trinity of God. And there is a great example in regard to the egalitarianism, the woman's role in the church and home these days. As you see, it is possible to have unity in diversity as we draw from the Trinity. We see a beautiful aspect, three distinct persons, different functions, and yet they work together in perfect harmony. So it's something that we need as Our brother mentioned here a few moments ago, we need to contemplate in a deeper measure because we'll find greater understanding and motivation in the days ahead as we consider the Trinity of our God. This morning, you say you're speaking on the subject of blessed are the peacemakers. You're going to the wrong text. You've directed our attention to James chapter 3, but if you would... Be patient for a moment and follow with me in your Bibles as I'll read the entire chapter. You must get the context to understand what we'll be looking at in regard to blessed are the peacemakers. Verse number one, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths, into the mouths of horses, so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and a bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by by mankind. But no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil Full of deadly poison. 
With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now please take note of verse 13. Who is a wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where envying and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And once again, I reiterate, take note of verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, I give you a heads up this morning as I look at this text and as I preach the discourse before you in your hearing I was telling some of the pastors that in the early days of running in Arminian circles, namely the Southern Baptist Convention and the Independent Baptist, which those two groups don't blend very well, but nonetheless they respected me enough to have me in their churches. But good preaching in the South is basically clearing off a spot and having a fit. That's at least the way many Arminians assess as good preaching. So consequently, I'd open my Bible, no notes, no nothing, and just take off on a rampage. And the louder you are and the more animated you are in the pulpit, the more these people like it. Over the years in my transition, God engendered a conviction in my heart to make sure that what I had to say was predicated upon Scripture. And so oftentimes when I preach, I'm looking at my notes constantly to make sure I stay on track and that everything I say has a tone of theological preciseness to it. So this morning, if I'm even more glued to my notes, please understand that I'm very conscientious that I'm not saying something and prophesying out of my own heart. But I pray that what I have to say would be profoundly edifying to you and most importantly, a sweet-smelling savor in the nostrils of our God. The context of the overall passage here begins with a solemn warning. You'll notice back in verse number 1 where James cautions those who desire to be teachers of a grave responsibility. Such a ministry, you note, should cause a man to tremble in light of future judgment. He says there, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, considering the verses on the tongue that follow, he seems to be more specifically addressing a teaching that possesses no reality of life. But many that are being addressed in the epistle here seem to be trusting exclusively in their eloquence. So here's the background. 
James is being confronted with a plethora of men who are coming and saying, I have a message. I have an ability to deliver this message. Therefore, I seek a platform. And what James, you'll find as we unpack the message this morning, is emphasizing that just because you have an ability to articulate and rattle on and on and on doesn't mean that you're called. There are many platform speakers today that wow the crowd with their suave and their eloquence, and yet they have no call of God upon their life. So they seek a following and they maintain a following, and the following grows. But sadly, they have no ministry. Listen carefully. These people believed that their ability to speak was the best qualification for being a teacher. By following James' admonition here on the nature of the tongue, he gives them the best criteria for teaching in verse 13. Look at it with me once again. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show forth out of a good character, a good conduct, that his works are done, note the word now, meekness of wisdom. It denotes peacemaking, as we'll see it confirmed in the text. You see, when considering a man as a teacher, James says to look for one whose life is governed by wisdom and knowledge. In other words, it's not what he says, it's not what he thinks, it's not how well he can expound, but does the truth that this man dispense, does it govern his life, everything he does? The nature of this wisdom is spiritual and views life from an eternal perspective. Whereas the knowledge or understanding speaks of a practical understanding of truth. Both are marks of spiritual maturity and both are demonstrated in a spiritual life that is characterized, listen now, by sincerity, holiness, and meekness. A proper understanding of the text reveals that there, that there were men who thought that they were qualified to teach because they could speak well. They could move a congregation with persuasive speech, but there was an absence of inner character to lead the people of God. They could impress with enticing words of man's wisdom, but were inefficient in self-control for doing those things that make for peace. So therefore, after James contrasts divine wisdom with worldly wisdom, he tells them at the end of the chapter that the real qualification for teaching is being an intentional, are you with me now? Track with me, an intentional peacemaker. Note verse 18, and the fruit or the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. This is huge. I taught a few years ago on the qualifications of being a spiritual leader. From those excellent texts in Titus and Timothy. And beyond those qualifications, I told our people, I believe that one of the vital needs of a leader was to give and receive correction. He not only took the initiative to give it to people one-on-one, -on -one, but he could receive it himself. But beyond the biblical qualities of spiritual leaders and their personal preferences, I began to recognize how vital it was for a man aspiring to leadership to be a peacemaker. 
In seeing this, listen now, I reflected on church history and recalled how much division, separation, bloodshed could have been avoided if Christian ministers would have only taken the time to reconcile their differences and promote unity. I'm not talking about a unity at all costs. But I'm talking about an inclination to make peace, to establish unity in the context of the church of the living God. Think about it this way. How many churches may have been kept from division leading to destruction if their leaders would have pursued the things that make for peace? How many relationships may have been spared from discord and permanent separation if church leaders would have spoken the truth in love? How many people would have found motivation in the example of their ministers if they had not been overcome with evil but overcome evil with good? You see, when I think of the possibility of what might have been, I am personally convinced convinced to do all I can do as a spiritual leader and elder in my own church as well as one that traffics other churches to do those things that cultivate peace among the body of Christ. I don't know if you've read the biography of R.C. Chapman. They call him the epistle of love. Spurgeon said he was the saintliest man that he ever knew. He was not a great preacher, but he was a wonderful shepherd. Oh, he preached. He could expound, but he didn't have a pulpit dynamic about him. The thing that was outstanding about his life that was most impactful was he was an epistle of holy love. Let me give you a little sketch of his character. Chapman was ever a peacemaker who walked in love, and so much so that at the end of his life of 99 years, he became so well known for his loving disposition and wisdom that a letter from abroad addressed simply to R.C. Chapman, University of Love, England, was correctly delivered to his home. That was all on the address. On one occasion, when someone asked Chapman, how are you, he replied that he was heavily burdened. The concerned inquirer was relieved when Chapman added, he daily loads us down with benefits. It is interesting, I love this, that after Chapman assumed the pastoral role of Ebenezer Chapel in Barnstaple, England, that a few of the members of the congregation did not like the change that was occurring in the church. They had a difficult time as a particular Baptist church with the new leadership, and they were vocal about it. But when they saw he was unmovable, many of these people left the church. Listen to what happened. They reacted to Chapman's leadership and gave the pastor much trouble. It is interesting because of the minister's relentless love for these people in the years that followed, most resolved their differences with him, and many of those people returned to the church and came under his authority. I like that. That speaks volumes to me. This is what I seek to emulate. If I want to leave a legacy behind for my grandchildren, my children, or those that know me, no exaggeration and no boasting of myself, I want to leave a legacy of love. Of love. There are three things in the text that I want to focus our attention upon. And first of all, we want to look at three qualities of a peacemaker. Verse number 13. 
The first thing you see underscored here is a godly character. You'll notice once again what it says. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct, good character, that his works are done in the meekness, the meekness of wisdom. Now, it's interesting, brothers and sisters, the Apostle James challenges those who believe that the qualification for being a teacher was speaking a speaking ability. He tells them that the real proof of whether they can teach is found in a godly behavior, listen now, that is characterized by meekness. He is saying for the benefit of those who recommend themselves, saying, I've been called, I have something to say, I have a message from the Lord. He says for their benefit, who recommend themselves by how well they speak, that their verbal giftedness is no proof of spiritual leadership. The real mark of leadership maturity is a life of holiness couched in a meek and loving disposition. Secondly, you see also that James underscores godly wisdom in verse 17. Notice he says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, notice now, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, it means open to reason in the ESV, full of mercy and of good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, Bear with me here as I run these words. Just talk about them at a glance. Listen. Heavenly wisdom, brothers and sisters, is to see life from God's perspective. It is God-centered and enables us to view everything through the lens of eternity. And what James gives us is eight aspects of this divine wisdom, characteristics they are, that are of a heart, that are behind a heart of peacemaking. First of all, he uses the word pure. What does it mean? Very simply, wisdom from above purifies the mind. As our brother said in the previous session, it's an internal thing. It begins from within. So therefore, it is a God-centered thing and enables us to view everything through the lens of eternity. It literally means the word pure is innocent. And as one man put it, the meaning here is that the first and immediate effect of religion is not on the intellect, is not on the intellect to make it more enlightened, but it is to purify our heart working from the inside out to make the man upright, inoffensive, and good. Don't see much of that these days. There is such a thing as a subtle power of spiritual abuse among church leaders at times, instilling fear, manipulating people, coercing situations to their own self-kingdom advantage. You see, peacemaking wisdom from above has good intent always in helping others. But there's a second word that's mentioned. He said this is characterized also by peace. It's peaceable. The wisdom, now note, the wisdom inclines a man to be a pacifier. He wants to settle issues. He wants relationships to be characterized by rest and not conflict. The wisdom inclines a man to be a pacifier. It seeks to pray for and take the initiative to reconcile parties. A believer under the influence of this wisdom strategizes ways of peace on how he might in himself restore parties recommending the best possible alternative to encourage peace. But it didn't stop there. Here's another characteristic. Gentleness. This word means mild or gentle. It is the word that we get, the expression, 
gentlemen from. It suggests a virtue of peace. A peacemaker's demeanor is characterized by a gracious long-suffering in seeing things resolved. Also, he says, they're willing to yield. The word here speaks of a deference in reason with. It means easily persuaded or compliant. The sense is, brothers and sisters, is that he who is under the influence of wisdom, which is from above, is not a stiff, stern, obstinate, unyielding man. He doesn't dig his heels in easily. The peacemaker, in other words, is willing to listen carefully without interruption to the view of another. You know, here, here's something let me just encourage you with. Sometimes you're, you're sat off with someone one-on-one, and all of a sudden something comes up and you're disputing over it, and the whole time you sit there and you're listening to the other party, you're not really listening to them, but you're thinking of another story that you can use to top their argument and win the war. You ever been there? You can't even, many people can't even fellowship without, if there's a story that comes up, they've got to top that story with another one. And they've got to top it with another one. And the whole time they're just telling stories. My story's a little bit better than yours. It behooves us to listen well as a peacemaker at times when it comes to arguments or disputes. But also, he uses the phrase, full of mercy. The ability to feel under difficult circumstances. Listen to this. Dispose, in other words, to compassion. What does the word compassion mean? It means I suffer with you. It's like I really seek to climb inside your skin and feel what you are feeling presently, the traumas that you are experiencing. He is inclined to imagine himself in the same conflict of interests. This peacemaker character also entails good fruits. Our brother mentioned that in the previous session once again. But to extend the good fruits means to extend grace and kindness and a benevolent hand to those who hurt in conflict. The peacemaker will encourage peace by often making personal concessions. Are you with me? Making personal concessions to restore harmony. They go the extra mile. Sometimes it's very painstaking. But they're willing to endure things for the elect's sake. Because they care for a brother or sister in Christ. Then he uses without partiality. It means to show no favoritism due to race, sex, social status, and personal relationship. You see, true wisdom seeks to show no bias toward one party over the other. And then finally, one more thing that characterizes this character of peacemaking is without hypocrisy. In other words, no false front. It means without cracks. There is no separation in his words and inward intent. As one commentator noted, what it professes, it is. Sincere. There's no disguise or mask assumed. What the man pretends to be, he is. He does not give a false impression. So we move on quickly. Another thing that we must underscore, as you see in the text, on this matter of cultivating a character of a peacemaker is a godly pursuit. And this is what I want you to see most. Look at verse 18 once again. Now the fruit or the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
This is not just for the man that's coming saying, I want a platform to speak. This is for everyone. It's a general principle. There's a promise here. The fruit of righteousness. This great harvest is sown in peace by those who make peace. Listen to what he's saying. The fruit of righteousness is an anticipated harvest of those who pursue peace. They invest for peace. They pray toward peace. They stalk for peace. The best fields for reaping a harvest of gospel fruit are quiet, restful places. Don't miss it now, men and women. Listen to this. It is not among battles, turmoils, political unrest, or fiery disputes. Why? Because the wrath of man never produces the righteousness of God. Never. You discipline your children. You lose control. You inflict wounds on their spirit because of your anger and frustration. It drives them away from grace. Same way in dealing with a brother. If you lose control and mete out anger in trying to rectify the situation, manipulation has never worked because the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. So, while God's sovereign grace can work mildly in the most turbulent context, he normally chooses to do his greatest work when the gospel is, are you with me? Sown in peace. Sown in peace. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? So here's the conclusion this morning. Spurgeon said there's a blessing in brevity. So I'm not going to keep you long. Listen to this. It is appropriate to remind, remind ourselves what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9. Once again, you can quote it with me, can't you? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now listen carefully. J.C. Ryle says, peacemaker means those who use all their influence to promote peace and unity on earth in private and in public. And I have literally seen men of God disarm an angry mob because of their humility and meekness. Not always, not always, but sometimes literally they are disarmed. My friend Paul Washer came out of Ray Comfort's conference in Atlanta. A man told me this. Paul would never talk about it. But he said what was awaiting him in the foyer of that massive Baptist church that they used for that conference was about 300 bloodthirsty Armenians. And they were ready to pounce on him and drag him into the parking lot and stone him to death because they heard he was a Calvinist. This friend who told me the story, he said, man, they were very vocal, they were loud, they were very spirited, angry. And right in his face, Brother Paul showed them the utmost respect Great dignity was conveyed. Peace and kindness. He listened to them. He answered very calmly, very discreetly, and very biblically. And my friend told me 45 minutes later, they were thanking him for coming. They just cowered down. They just melted. I want to be like that. You have no idea, friend. I mean, being that I formerly was a, in a movement, a Baptist movement, that they were known for their heavy-handedness. I mean, using the pulpit as a whipping post. If anybody questioned anything that you said in that movement as a leader, they were, like, at least spiritually excommunicated. And so they ran their churches with a rod of iron. 
And I was there in those pastors' fellowships. I love those men even to this day. But I saw how their ruthless, abusive, emotional abuse would divide the body of Christ. Nobody would speak up to them. But it hurt their people. It divided their families and ultimately they led to multiple spiritual casualties in the lives of their children. I don't want to be that way. You might look at me and say, well, you're a wimp. I'm not a wimp. I believe in biblical manhood. We need to stand courageous and strong in Christ. But a lot of what we call Fearlessness and boldness is nothing more than just spiritual pride and revealing itself in a spirit of arrogance and self-righteousness. How disconcerting it is that so many people are inclined to be instigators or contributors to strife. Please listen. They delight in inciting contention rather than promoting peace. I'm well acquainted with such professing believers presently in my own life. One individual has a reputation of criticizing every church leader he becomes acquainted with. Sooner or later, he sketched the character enough that he finds out something that he can use to demean or to reproach an individual. While another believer assumes that he is a crusader crusader for a religious cause when he regularly posts content on social media that stirs up strife in his opponents and invokes bitterness in some that never had an issue over a matter to begin with. This is happening. So the question is asked, and I ask it this morning, I'm going to talk to you like I'm sitting in front of you. I make a loving appeal to your conscience and love. Do you want to be a peacemaker? Do you want to be a proponent of peace? Here's what you need to think of. If you desire to take the painstaking steps to assume the role of encouraging men and women to reconcile their differences, and you are willing to begin the process of sowing in peace by dying to your own self-will to right wrongs with people that you have carried a personal grudge or offense toward for years, here's how you cultivate the character of a peacemaker. Listen carefully. Seek peace and pursue it in your relationship with all men. Listen to the word of God, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Please listen carefully. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him shun evil and do good Let him seek peace and pursue it. It's interesting, the word pursue there, you know what it means? Stalk. We don't like stalkers, do we? I really have a tremendous aversion to men that stalk children or stalk women. But in a good sense, The word stalk here means that I'm literally hunting down. I'm strategizing. I'm doing everything I can to come up with ways through the guidance of the Holy Spirit to make for peace. I had a long guy. Didn't do what I asked him to do. I said, you understand what I want you to do? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. I went over it with him again. They came out, they did the lawn work. It wasn't what I asked him to do. I had a conversation with him over the telephone, and I was heated. And he could tell I was. And I insinuated I wasn't going to pay him for the work. As soon as I got off the phone, I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit just ate my lunch. Because you know why? 
I was in the process of preparing a series of messages on peacemaking. And it was like it was thrown in my face. I gave it an hour and I called him back. I said, sir, I'm sorry for my attitude. Would you please forgive me? Oh, he said, there's nothing to forgive. I said, yes, there is. I said, would you please, please forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. And I said, I want you to know, I said, I'm going to pay you for the work. There's no problem. He was stunned. I had an opportunity to share Christ with him. I'm not so sure how much of it he received after I was so angry with him before. But I said, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. And the way I treated you, my attitude towards you was not right. Please forgive me. We must pursue for peace. Secondly, here's another application. Determine to be gospel-driven in your pursuit of peacemaking. Determine to be gospel-driven in your pursuit of peacemaking. Ephesians chapter 4, boy, listen to this. Ephesians 4, verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 2. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Be you therefore followers of God as dear children. This is what you're to emulate if you're going to emulate the Father. Love as the Father loves. And he says, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself. This is interesting. Nothing sustains peacemaking any more than consistently pondering the cross. It's amazing. Relishing, as we mentioned last night, plumbing the depths of the beauties of the atonement, friend, would disarm you of spiritual pride. Only by pride comes contention. Only by pride. Did you catch it? Only by pride comes contention. Remember this. Propitiation propels peacemaking. The propitious work of Christ, when you start contemplating how that God's son was crushed under God's wrath to satisfy the wrath of God, I tell you, friend, all of a sudden it begins to take hold of you. The more you meditate upon it, the grace of God begins to work through the power of the Holy Spirit to make you more and more inclined to make for peace. Before reconciliation ever takes place, someone must take the position of death. In redemption, reconciliation, who took the position of death? To wit, God was in Christ in the death of his son, reconciling the world unto himself. Before you make restitution or reconciliation with anyone in your family or your faith family, someone that is a distant Christian brother or sister in Christ, you must take the position of death to your reputation, to your rights, to the right to be right if you expect restitution and reconciliation to occur. And here's another, another application. Remember, remember now, that peacemaking will often require confrontation and may result in rejection. You have to go. And as you confront in love, not in an arrogant way, not in an angry way, but you confront the person in love, appealing to their conscience, sometimes you will not be received. Listen to the passage in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to blame. 
And when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, live after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compel thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? You're talking about risk-taking faith. Paul, how dare you talk to the apostle Peter like that? But his hypocrisy was affecting those around him in the church. Understand, brethren, spiritual maturity is often measured in ways that are foreign to our own way of thinking. One of those ways is to exercise, once again, risk-taking faith in assuming the role of a peacemaker to reconcile two brothers who are at odds with one another. If Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, that they are called the children of God, what would Christ say about the peace forsakers? This demands and calls for our utmost attention and dedication. Are we peacemakers? So listen to a final narrative here. Many of you have heard of the Nobel Peace Prize. Do you ever consider the story behind it? Alfred Nobel invented dynamite in 1866, and he built up companies and laboratories in more than 20 countries all over the world. In the process, he amassed a considerable fortune. After Nobel's brother died, the newspaper made a mistake and ran an obituary for Alfred rather than his brother. In the obituary, they stated that he was known for creating the most destructive force known to mankind, dynamite. When Nobel read the obituary, he decided that he didn't want his family name remembered for destruction. Now listen to this. While science has built the foundation for Nobel's own activities as a technological researcher and inventor, Efforts to promote peace had always been close to his heart. As a result, he began thinking about giving away his fortune to recognize those that had been made significant contributions in physics, chemistry, medicine, literature, and peace. And this is the beauty of the story. On November 27, 1895, Nobel signed his final will and testament at the Swedish Norwegian Club in Paris. When Nobel, listen, died on December 10, 1896, he was discovered that according to his will, his vast wealth was to be used for five prizes, including one for peace. Love this. It finishes by saying the prize for peace was to be awarded to the person who had done the most or the best work for fraternity between nations, for the abolition or reduction of standing armies, or for the holding of peace congresses. And just before his death, he confided in a friend, I want to be remembered for peace, not destruction. Now, I ask you the question this morning. What do you want to be known for? What do we wish to be remembered for, dynamite or peace? The dynamite of a contentious spirit or a disposition of character conveying peace. It is best to remember And I ask you to listen carefully. To be a peacemaker requires certain things. A person of this nature is not overcome with evil, but overcomes evil with good. Romans 12, verse 21. He learns to live in peace with all men. Romans 12, and verse 18. He refuses to be argumentative, but be gentle to all men, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. He will speak the truth in love, 
in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. He looks after the interests of others in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4. And he is willing to exercise once again that term risk-taking faith to establish peace according to Romans chapter 14 and verse 19. This is my pursuit. This is not just a series I cultivated, developed in preparation for a conference. This is my aim in life. I want to be known as a peacemaker. Not someone whose ministry is characterized by polemical argument and divisiveness. I pray that that's what your life and ministry will be characterized by, even if you're not someone aspiring to speak from a a public platform. As a mother, as a sister, as a layman, I pray that your aspiration, first and foremost, is to glorify God by being a peacemaker. Let's pray together. Help us, dear Father, to receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to deliver our souls. In these matters of truth relating to the character of peace, I pray that there might be a conviction birthed in the hearts of your sons and daughters to know the blessing of being a peacemaker. And to be known as a result of being the children of God. Please, help us to do those things, preach those things, encourage with those things that make for peace. May it all redound to the glory of your Son, the Prince of Peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you guys would stand with me one last time as we sing together, um, as we sing with you guys one more time, um, I just want to say I'm thankful for everything. I'm thankful for all you guys and just being here and just worshiping the Lord, and I'm uh, thankful for Dexter and his faithfulness to the text, and um, he's a great guy, and uh, guys, um, let's, uh, I know we just prayed, but let's pray one more time together. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, God, I pray as before we sing your, um, your truths, God, about you, God, I pray that our hearts would not be in vain, that these words would not be empty, that these praises